Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to The Old Men and the Three ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. You know what gets me through the home stretch of the NBA season? A solid mystery thriller, which is why I highly recommend checking out Audible. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. I'm currently listening to The Wager by David Grant. It's a thrilling story of shipwreck, survival, and savagery, culminating in a court-martial that reveals a shocking truth. And good news, as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. And new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash JJ or text JJ to 500-500. That's audible.com slash JJ or text JJ to 500-500. Welcome to the Old Man of the Three with JJ Reddick and Tommy Alter presented by Cash App and brought to you by 342 Productions. This is episode 112, RJ Barrett. Tommy, we are so excited to have RJ on the podcast RJ is someone that a lot of our listeners have been asking for, yes. so really excited to get him on. Between the Duke fandom, the Knicks fans, the <laughs> Canadian basketball fans, <laughs> there are a yeah. lot of there are a lot of RJ fans out there. It's really interesting to me because I live in New York and I interact with Knicks fans all the time. Uh, whether it's uh, walking my kids to school uh, at a bodega at the park, like. People always ask about the Knicks. They always ask about RJ specifically. He's got a lot of fans in the city. And I think to some degree, his development is one of the hopes that Knicks fans are clinging on to. Does that make sense? Oh, I don't think to some degree. I think to a major degree. I think that whatever happens with the you know the Knicks over the next five years, RJ is going to be a major part of and he's taking a he's taking a bunch of strides. We'll talk about it with him, but he's taking a bunch of strides already. But you know he's got to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's touch on. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Let's touch on the games last night. We're going to talk Nets, Celtics, and Kevin Durant with RJ at the top. So I do want to briefly touch on 76ers, Raptors, and Bucks, Bulls. Where do you want to start, Tommy? I want to start with the with my Bulls. <laughs> Because I and I'm you know I'm guilty as anybody. I didn't think they had a chance in the series based off of how they played, really the last six weeks of the season, and also how they played Milwaukee all year. But I kind of we kind of talked about this after Game One, how I like I wouldn't have been super confident you know as a Bucks fan after that performance after Game One, with knowing those guys are not going to shoot like that again. They did not shoot like that again. They shot well. Our boy Caruso was up in everybody's shit. Uh, and now Middleton is hurt. And so I feel like we got ourselves a little series going. The Bucks, not only in this series, but the Bucks' hopes to repeat and get back to the finals rests obviously on the health of Chris Middleton's knee and how serious this injury is, how he recovers, how he performs, assuming he gets back on the court at some point during these playoffs. That aside, 
the bounce back from Vucevic, Zach Levine, and DeMar DeRozan was spectacular. DeMar in particular just completely dominated that game. The shot making in the second half, especially down the stretch, every time the Bucks got close, he had an answer. It's just Durant talked, Kevin talked about this on the podcast a few weeks ago. As a basketball player, there's something about shot makers that we all love. Yeah. There's something that, truthfully, I'm a little jealous of to watch DeMar DeRozan operate in the mid range with such what appears to be such ease and fluidity, just the jumpers, the way the ball was going through the net last night. I was just, I was really impressed. And you mentioned it. He hasn't been their best player in the series, but Alex Caruso to me has been their most important player in the series. In these first two games, even in game one, so disruptive, whether it was steals, deflections, taking the bucks out of their offense, drawing multiple offensive fouls, I mean, there's a big takeaway here if you're a Lakers fan. I hate to say it. <laughs> I think they know. I don't think we need to try to drive the dagger in. Uh, is there anything? Is there my question for you about the Bucks? I mean, we're only two games in, so I don't want to draw any crazy conclusions. Middleton's health aside, which is a big aside, is there anything about them that looks particularly different from last year's team that that you could sort of point to that they're not doing as well? Um, and maybe an adjustment they need to make to sort of get back on a championship track? Well, I think they were on a championship track. 35 and 10 this season when the big three played. Missed Brooke Lopez for most of the season. He has looked really good. Even prior to the start of the playoffs, he had some big games down the stretch of the regular season. I thought he was fantastic in game one, as we mentioned. But... Sometimes it just comes down to matchups, and maybe maybe this is just a bad matchup for them. The game plan for uh, the Bulls has been fantastic. You know, they're 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 what what I love about their offense is they use Vooch as a hub, and so yeah, Demar, you know, he's going to get his shots. Zach Levine's going to get his shots. They're going to hopefully create some open threes through. Uh, penetration and through the pick and roll, but the way they just move the ball side to side, getting to actions, there's no one ever in the paint unless Booch is posting up. Um, to me, I, I like watching that. It's not so much sets and, uh, you know, scripted play calling as it is just basketball. We're going to spread the floor. We're going to use Vooch at the top of the key. If we don't have the first action, we're going to throw it back to him He's going to get to that second side, either through a DHO dribble handoff or a, a pick and roll. And then, of course, the way that we, we talk about this a lot with Joel Embiid, but the way that Vooch mixes up when he rolls and when he pops. Yeah, there's a there's a feel to it as a big. And I think he does that as well as anyone. And he's look, he didn't shoot well in game one. But that, he's the player to me, if I'm the Bucs, i got to figure out how to put some pressure on him when he's catching the ball at the top of the key and disrupt that flow offense. Um, 76ers, Raptors, not much to say other than highly competitive game. I do want to talk about the last play, and a lot of it has been made about this um, on Twitter. And, and, of course, I was watching uh, Get Up this morning and, and a little bit of first take before we hopped on here. But there's two things that I want to just make an observation on. Number one, Joel Embiid was dead in the water 
he's at half court getting ready to heave a desperation one-handed shot and doc i mean i don't even think it was a good timeout i, I, I like i, I don't even, the timeout should have been called prior to that he waited till point point nine seconds I, I he was signaling at about 1.5 but he got point nine seconds of the clock so very smart play from doc um sets up a play we had run this play for me i specifically remember we were at dallas my last year with the Clippers, we either, we were down, we were either down one or two. And we ran this play on the opposite side because I like to turn over my left shoulder. And I got a clean look. It hit the back of the rim, rolled, you know, rolled out, and, and we lost the game. But it's essentially you, you, you're, you're running a couple guys over top of Joel and the screener. And then Tobias set a little little in screen, if you call it a little in screen, it's not really a rip screen. It's not a pin down. It's a little in screen, a flare screen, if you will, for Joel to get out to the corner. I don't have necessarily a problem with the Raptors taking Fred Van Vliet off the ball. Nick Nurse, he's signaling for him, you know, fall back, fall back, fall back, because he was initially in position to be on the ball. And then he, he went underneath the basket. My big issue is they were supposed to be switching. If you look, that first loop that Maxi makes, they start switching Gary Trent Jr. wasn't anywhere. He was in no man's land. And so when Tobias sets the flare screen for Joel on Achua, there was no one there. You know, FVV is back protecting the basket in case they go for a lob. Like, I, you know, the mistake to me was not taking FVV off the ball. The mistake to me was just a complete lack of execution on the Raptors, tar- uh, Raptors part in the switching. This might be a dumb question, but... Um... You know, when you watch the play, obviously Fred is late getting there to a certain extent, but it's also just the massive size difference in terms of him being able to get that shot off. Yeah, but he you know, but he shouldn't have been there. It should have been Gary Trent. Gary so, Trent was nowhere. Gary, Gary Trent was supposed to switch on to Joel. That's so, that's the issue. So that, not, so so he shouldn't have been able to catch the ball there is what is what you're saying. Like that, like the like him catching the ball there him is what the problem. Catching the ball was. clean and just turning around. Like yeah. again, if FVV switch or if, if Gary Trent switches onto him at the point of the screen, then it's a much, much different shot. Size yeah. difference aside, it's a different yeah. shot. It's this just not a clean, like, it's just not this, a clean look. It this was a scriptage. This is like the end of every shoot around I ever had with Doc yeah. Rivers. The end of every practice, we go over three or four end of game plays from the side out. We would do that every single practice or shoot around. And it looked like a scripted shot. The switch wasn't anywhere to be found. And the yeah. communication, even on that first loop that Maxi made, you can tell there was some confusion. They were supposed to be switching. Clear as day. Clear so, as day. I get I get taking Fred, putting him under the basket in case there's a lob, some sort of back screen to Joel. You muck it up a little bit. I get all that. I get that strategy. You, you don't want to have somebody on the ball. I get that. Now, the opposite of that, of course, is, you know, we are taught, generally speaking, not, not every t- coach teaches this, but most, most do. In a situation like this, where a catch-and-shoot three is required, if you're guarding the inbounder on the side, you shade the entire sideline. So you don't allow that pass to the corner. Generally speaking, end of game, you're putting someone with length and size on the inbounder. They started out with Fred on the inbounder, which, again, that's, you know, I I love Fred. We, 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 We love Fred, but that's not length or size. That's not typically the the personnel that you would put there. So whether they left him there or not, they, they just completely botched the play. They completely yeah, it, is, botched it. it is, it is funny. It just was, it was just 
so clean all the way around. It was like so clean. It was such an easy pass for Danny and it was such an easy release for Joel. And you're kind of like, well, guys, like what else do you have going on? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, give, I look, give credit to Joel, a, a monster performance. Um, my tip, this, my- this brings up a whole different thing too, is like, should we, should we vote for MVP at a different point in time? I think so. I think I I texted you this the other All night. All the other awards, though, are regular season. This is the one that consistently people have an issue with. I I think I think I think as we go further in the when playoffs. Are they, when, when are they going to announce MVP? I, I don't know. They, they whenever they, they announce it, they announce it in two weeks. They're going to announce, and I don't know any obviously anything, but my get strong guess is they're going to announce MVP for Nikola Jokic, who's going to be. <laughs> Not in the U.S. His team will have been swept in four games handily. And Joel is going to be like, who knows what this team is going to go and who knows what he's going to do over the next uh, over the next six weeks. And it's not like, you know, it's a it's like he's he's winning the award because of his playoff performance. It was a very close race as is. I think that they should wait. What do you think? It gets it gets tricky. It gets tricky, especially when you look at the history of the award and how it's awarded. Um I don't have a good answer, nor do I have a good theory. Uh, about, you know, I, I don't have a definitive answer. I don't have a definitive take. Um, it's just always, it's always murky uh, when we talk about the timing. Um, was it, was it Dirk's year? Was it Dirk's year that he won MVP that they lost in the first round? I may have that wrong. It's they lost at Golden State. When they lost to Golden State, it, that may be right. I can't remember. Um, Jason I don't remember says, everything. Jason says I yes. do remember, though, that Jason Bob says Guzzi that, Jason never says, shot over 40%. I, I do. Yeah, Jason says hassle for bringing up a Dallas Maverick memory. I do remember, though. I, this is etched in my brain that Bob Cousy never shot over forty percent from the field in his career. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How do you think Bob Cousy would have done in that game last night, the Philly uh, Toronto game? Um, <laughs> Pell Suns. The last thing I want to touch on. A lot of uncertainty with uh, with Devin Booker and his availability going forward in this series. Let's give some credit to Willie Green, the Pelicans, the Pelicans front office uh, for for swinging that C.J. McCollum trade. They've got two really good shot makers and shot creators in in Brandon Ingram and C.J. McCollum. This is going to be a battle. And they just announced this morning, game three and game four at Smoothie King Center is already sold out. That place is going to be rocking. Rocking for game three and four. It's an exciting time to be a Pels fan. It's exciting. And I think, you know, you're obviously very close with him. He's been on the show, be on the show again, but we should just shout out BI. It's very nice to see a guy that, that gifted, you know, who works that hard, who he's never had playoff moments like this. You know what I mean? He had one of those games uh, in game two, and I think he has a good chance to have another one in this series, no matter what happens. And so it's cool sometimes to see guys like that, make that step at this level. Yes. I I saw something funny on Twitter this morning. Um, a, I can't remember the exact description of the tweet, but it called Brandon Ingram an ethical bucket getter. No, no foul baiting, no trickery. You know, he's just he a just, pure hooper. He just does it. And he I'm excited for him that uh, the national audience is getting to see that on this stage. Uh, that rest of the rest of the series is going to be fascinating. Um, all right. I think we should get to our conversation with Duke legend, New York Nick, RJ Barrett. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, 
everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. That sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I've ranted about this before, but I mean it. I miss the days when coaches wore suits to games. Like Pat Riley. He just knew how to dress. And you can too, thanks to Indochino. Indochino makes fully customized suits that don't require a trip to the tailor to get that perfect fit. Measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom. Wear your new look right out of the box and stay out of your budget's red zone with custom suits starting at just $3.99. I'm calling finals games now, and my plan is to outdress the legend Mike Breen. That's going to be a difficult task. I just got this navy suit from Indochino, and I did all my measurements online. I was able to customize the fabric, so it's just right for my skin. The process was super fast, and I was especially impressed by that pricing. And if you need a suit but don't know where to begin, Indochino tells you what's in style, so you're not guessing when choosing customizations. So think of Pat Riley and level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code OLDMAN to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com with code OLDMAN. All right, let's welcome in RJ. RJ, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Shout out to the Brotherhood, by the way, Tommy. Shout out to the Brotherhood. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> sir, yes, sir. Just get it out of the way now. <laughs> I appreciate y'all having me. Yeah, thank you for doing this. How how often, though, when you go out for warm-ups in a game and you see a Duke player, is it pretty much a, and he's on a different team is it pretty much 100 100 of the time that there's at least some sort of acknowledgement a dap a handshake a hug something along those lines right yeah for sure i mean especially especially now cuz i feel like the age that i am like i i know some of the you know i know most of the older guys so like you know i have like friendships with them and, and stuff so it's always uh, always love for sure i love that uh let's start with uh, the playoffs. I want to touch on the Nets Celtics series. This has been one of the most competitive uh, first round series that we've had. Uh, obviously, Boston's up 2 0, but both games were just fantastic playoff basketball games. Um, is this, you're, you're a basketball fan. You, I assume, grew up watching Kevin Durant. Is this the most out of sorts you've ever seen him? Because for me, it is. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was tough. His shots weren't his shots weren't weren't falling. But I was talking to you know somebody earlier about it. Like he went four for seventeen and still had twenty seven points. I mean that's <laughs> like, and then for us to see someone who got shut down and had twenty seven on seventeen shots. I mean that's he's he's still pretty amazing. RJ, speaking as someone who's played well against this defense this year, what? How do you how do you play the? this Boston D the way that they switch and just with the length and everything like that. Yeah, no, they're, they're tough, especially when they had uh, Robert Williams in there, man. He's, he's a big game changer too. Um, They just, they switch really, they switch everything and all of them are just aggressive. All of them are aggressive and, and really Marcus Smart kind of leads the, leads the charge there. So now they're they're pretty good. My observation 
in terms of Kevin and what I've seen this series is like any offensive player, you want to be in your comfort zone. You want to be in a rhythm. You want to play at your own speed. And it hasn't mattered whether he's on the ball, bringing it up the court or at the top of the key, getting ready to go in a pick and roll. Or like last night, a bunch, they tried to ISO him at the elbow in that 17 to 18 foot area. And the initial defender is just giving him no room. Derek White switched onto him multiple times last night and he had no airspace whatsoever. And then if you look at the back line, there's always a second or third, sometimes a third defender ready to come. And I don't know if it's, if it's advantageous to keep putting him in these spots. Like they kept talking about on the broadcast last night, movement, movement, movement. And so for you, when you've gone against a defense like Boston um, or you've gone against a, a, another great half-court defensive team, can you just sort of talk about like the different ways that you think about getting, uh, getting into your spots through movement? Uh, sure. What you said, that's the key word is movement, you know, because right now, uh, as you know, in the playoffs, like a team like Boston is going to look better just because the refs aren't calling as many fouls. And, you know, like and it, something I've heard before is if all five players are fouling, the refs can't call all of them, <laughs> you know, so like they're, they're, every time he tries to catch the ball, they're like. They're, they're hitting them, they're fouling them. And, um, but like you said, movement, just kind of got to try to get off it and, and try to get them some easy buckets. Did, did you, and obviously Atlanta last year was a very, uh, a very different defensive team than Boston is this mm-hmm. year, but the defense always ramps up a little bit. What did you sort of experience or what did you feel or sense going against a playoff defense last year in the first mm-hmm. round? I, what I learned, the biggest part was how important the mid-range is, you know, for, for a player like me. Um, coming off the screen, they, they try to just funnel me into Clint Capella every time, you know. So trying to go up against a footer every time down there is, is tough, you know. So that's why you see in the playoffs all the guys that are making those mid-range shots, they just they look way better. RJ, I was curious this, you know, with young players, it's, it's, it's different for all of them, but what's the, what was the learning curve like for you in that series in terms of like mm-hmm. when you, when you sort of started to feel comfortable, like, did it take a game, two games? Like how long before you're like, oh no, I kind of realized the difference in the pace. Yeah. Uh, I think the first, the first two games, I mean, you could, you see the pace immediately just the energy was you know it was crazy but to, to figure it out I really feel like game three yeah game three game four I, I started to get a little more comfortable you know um because the first two games is literally just all emotion sometimes you, you, you're not even thinking like <laughs> you're just going out there and just playing hard so I kind of settled down in those those game three game four game five some of it in my experience at least was uh especially early on in my career those, if, if we started to play at the playoffs as the higher seed, there's so much energy from the home crowd that you feel so sped up. And as an NBA player, at some point during the season, it's just like, it's just a flow. It's a rhythm. Everything feels the same night to night. And you're not thinking it slows down. And then all of a sudden you get in the playoffs and the, the, that first game's at home. 
it's a different experience. I I always liked playing road playoff games. It yeah. felt like it felt. It, I know this sounds crazy. It felt quieter to me. My my brain felt quieter. My body was more in tune. Am I? Did, did you feel yeah. that at all last year? I know you mentioned Game Three. That's a road yeah. game in Atlanta. Did you feel mm-hmm. that? Hundred percent. Like man, that that first game, like the end, of the first two, like the energy in the building was just like off the charts to to the point where, like you said, everything you're so sped up. Like like it's harder. It's harder to think because you just you have so much adrenaline. Like you're so excited, and then on the road games, like whenever a team is. Like whenever the, the opposing fans are like talking trash and you don't really have, it's just you and your team. Like it's way easier to think. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It kind of like, it's quiet. Like you score, it's quiet. Your teammates make a play. It's quiet. It's like, yeah. Like, okay, let's play, let's play basketball instead of, I mean, especially in the garden, man, it was just, it was insane. I, I was going to ask, I was going to ask how quickly after uh, the Knicks fans started rioting after that win, did you realize what was going on? <laughs> Bro, like after after we won game two, like it really felt, it really felt like okay, we're just gonna win the series. Like we just we're gonna win the whole series now because we won game two. Like just the energy in the city, man, it's just they were in the streets going crazy. Like yeah, and all that. The the fans are the fans are nuts. <laughs> How much in that series were you paying attention to the narrative around Trey the villain? Because so much was made of that on the broadcasts, uh, in the media the next day, you know, whether you're watching ESPN or uh, on social media, uh, that was such a huge deal for him to go through that. But as a player and amongst your teammates, the, the, the Knicks coaching staff, like, were you guys paying attention at all that, to all that? I mean, it's hard not to. <laughs> it's hard not to, but, like, the fans in, in the garden were brutal, you know, towards him. So I, I, I feel like my my respect level for him grew after, you know, how well he played. Like, you know, as a player, he's, you know, he, he's special. Um, but just not nah, like the fans are brutal. It's like New York and, and, and Philly are just two places where, you know, it, it's not it's not really fun for you if you want to go play in there. If you're not like mentally strong, like it's going to be those two places going to be tough. Have you had a have you had a Philly experience with the fans? Have you had a oh, bad Philly experience? Just, oh man, just like my my family members is, is more like like they'll be in the wow. crowd and and they have they're like getting you know back and forth with other people in the crowd and stuff like yeah man you know every time they announce the starting lineup they go you suck like it's crazy <laughs> in Philly man it's one of the most fun place places to play for me yeah it was a, it was a fun place to play for me as well except when they booed me. That was the only part. Was. <laughs> well, I was going to JJ. I was going to ask you what, what what was the playoff? What what which game was it? The net series where you guys got booed off the court? I specifically got booed off the court. <laughs> Is that game one? <laughs> I want to be clear on that. RJ, we played the Nets my second year there in the first round. We beat them four one, by the way. And I and I ended up after game one had a good series, but in game one I fouled out. I think I had seven points on like two of seven shooting. It was just like mm. one of those games where I was not really involved other than to get ISO'd and foul people. Like that was yeah. basically my game. They kept ISOing me. I kept fouling. And D'Angelo got me. He baited me into a foul and he waved me off the court. And as I was walking back to the bench, they booed me. And I, I don't know if that was the time I flipped off a, a 76ers fan, but I talked about this the other day with Kyrie when he flipped, flipped off the fans. Like I did that one time in Philly, but to the home crowd. 
That's funny. Yeah, no, nah, they'll, they'll boo you. Man, we got booed countless times in the garden. So I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, if you can play, I always say, if you can play in the Northeast, if you can play in Boston and Philly and New York, uh, not Brooklyn, but uh, the New York Knicks, if you mm. play for those teams, you can play anywhere. There's yeah, nothing sure. like playing for those teams. Did you, um, oh, speak, I've, I've, I have one more question on this, RJ. Before you were drafted, and we're going to get into the draft store and everything like that. Did you know this about Knicks fans about how just fucking crazy they are? Because there, it no. really is it really is next level. You can make an argument to the best fans in all of sports when you look at how dedicated they are versus, you know, what they've been given over the last 25, 30 years. Bro, I really I really had no clue. I really had no clue like just you know, I'm from I'm from Canada, so I don't really like there was no way for me to really get that experience and then all you've ever heard about like the Knicks, all they show on social media is like how bad they were like past couple years and all that. So then when you really, when you get to the city now and you're here and you're playing, I'm like, this is like, it's all over the place. There's Knicks fans everywhere, no matter where you go, like just the love. And, and what I, what I found out is just across the world, like you go anywhere in the world, like we're in Orlando and it's like a home game. Like, yeah, man. So the fans, yeah, it's nuts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. There's one thing that my life as a professional athlete has taught me. It's the importance of a good night's sleep, and my sleep has improved big time ever since we started using a Helix mattress. Everybody is unique and sleeps differently, which is why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from. We selected a Helix model with a more responsive foam that cradles the body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, which is great for anyone struggling with back pain. Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. And right now, Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash JJ and use code HELIXPARTNER20. That's HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash JJ. Use code HELIXPARTNER20. We talked uh, in the intro about Joel Embiid's shot last night, and we've spoken about Knicks fans, and we've talked about the Boston defense. So I think this is the perfect time to talk about your game winner on January 6th against the Celtics. So you banked it in, going the wrong way with Jason Tatum on the side of your shooting hand. And we saw him last night block Kevin Durant. Take us through that play. Because I know, I know for a fact when you released that ball, you thought that ball was – there was no way that shot was going in. <laughs> yeah. Man, something had to go in that night. <laughs> Terrible game. Uh, but 
funny part is I didn't even really know to play. Like, I thought I was out. I didn't know I was in the game. Like, so I, I didn't even pay attention to play. I was at the end of the bench, like, not paying attention. And then four guys went out there and they yelled at me like, yo, RJ, you're on. I'm like, what? So I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And they're like, I came to the ball. And then I think Jason's contest actually helped me make the shot because I had to shoot it higher. But, yeah, I didn't even see it go in. I just fell. I was trying to get a foul, honestly. And, uh, yeah, it went in. So I started talking trash after. I, didn't... <laughs> I just started talking crazy after. Wait, so does does Tibbs know that? Tibbs know that, knows that you were not paying attention to the huddle? And did, does, Man, did you guys talk about it afterwards? <laughs> we we didn't. Like, we're because we were kind of doing, like, an offense-defense thing. And then I didn't know I was still in the game. So I just kind of went out there. I mean, thank God it worked out. That's an amazing story. Yeah, the the the, uh, the angle uh, the, at which you shot, and the because I again like if I'm on the other side, I was all we were talking about it earlier. I was always a left shoulder player. Everything mm-hmm. going over my left shoulder to my right hand. For me, at six four with a negative wingspan. I, I wouldn't even have been able to get the shot off, period. So I, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, that moment in the garden, to experience that euphoria, did you sort of black out? Do you remember anything? Was there a specific thing you remember about that moment once that shot went in? Uh, I remember Julius was there. I was on the ground, and Julius is so strong. He just, like, just lifted me up <laughs> so then I was on my feet and I think the picture of like me in the middle and all my teammates surrounding me like I'm gonna get that frame it was just just a crazy moment like the whole arena was you know was loud and uh just definitely a special moment I did your guys but the first game I did for ESPN this year as a, a color commentator was your game in Philly it was there the, James Harden's first home game and I didn't know this, but apparently you have time with the head coaches beforehand, which I thought was pretty cool. So I went and talked to Doc for a little bit on my own. Then we met with Doc, and then we went and met with Tibbs. And we had about 10 minutes with Tibbs, and, you know, we're asking him questions. And it's Tibbs being Tibbs. He's very monotone, very deep voice. Oh, you yeah. know, he's giving us his oh, normal yeah. answers. And mm-hmm. I can't remember my exact question, but I asked about you. It was the last question we all got to ask, and I asked about you. And all of a sudden – his facial expression changed, his body language changed, and he he sung your praises. He was he was very high on you. Um, and he's been often regarded as a as a difficult coach at times to play for. Can you just talk about your relationship with him uh, over the last few seasons? Yeah, no, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because that's my guy. I was actually talking to him yesterday at the facility. That's he, he he's really my guy, man. And uh just He's a great coach. I feel people have tough time um, with him just because he expects excellence. You know, he, he expects you to to be in there and work every day. He he's not really with the when you know people are like ah I need I need a couple games off or I just I don't feel like practicing today. Like he's not. You can't play for Tibbs if that's your mindset. So like you know like guy like me like. You know, I, I lace them up, really, no matter what's going on. I'm out there, you know, every day. So we kind of built that relationship. Um, so, yeah, nah, Tibbs is yeah, – he's a good coach. Do you 
see any similarity and I didn't play for Tibbs. I nearly came close twice. Uh, once I signed with, I signed with the bulls uh, when he got the job with Chicago and then Orlando matched cause I was restricted. And then I almost signed again uh, with Minnesota in the summer of 17. Um, so I didn't play for him, but do you, did you find, have you found any similarities between him and, and coach and Co- coach K? Yes. Uh, I would say they're similar. One, they're friends, and I didn't know that until like he came to the Knicks. I didn't know that they were they were friends, but they're actually close. But um, he's very disciplined. Um, he's very disciplined, which is Coach K is like that too, you know. And uh, he lets you play. He lets you be yourself. He's not like uh, just on you too much about like everything. He gives you the freedom to kind of go and and, and be yourself. He actually he really wants you to succeed. Uh, so that's how I, I see that Coach K and him are similar just in that regard. They just – they let you be you. They let you be you. They just want you to work hard. That's it. RJ, we talk with a lot of the young guys about just their adjustment coming into the league, you know, on and off the court mentally, just sort of getting themselves kind of ready for the difference between the NBA and college. Do you think – to that point I was going to ask about Coach as well. Do you think that that, you know, the – playing at Duke is almost like playing in the NBA in a lot of ways? And so do you feel like that – just set you up to be in a place where there wasn't as much of a learning curve, you know, with everything that comes into both being in the NBA and then also being in the NBA as a three, the number three overall pick for the Knicks, you know, with that kind of pressure. Yeah, you know, Coach K, he, he treats you like a pro uh, when you go there. He treats you like a pro. He treats you like a grown man. Um, one thing I've always you know, loved about him. Uh, and just I feel like our team, like just that spotlight that we had that year, I mean, that kind of sets you up for, for playing, you know, playing for the Knicks. Like, just being able to go through that, especially with Zion, Trey, and Cam, like other, you know, great players like that was kind of set you up. Also, coming into the league, you're playing with other good players. So going there helps you to learn how to figure out how to play with another another guy on the team, another two guys on your team, and, and you can still be successful. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. That's a that's a really good point. I'm very curious about your recruiting story. How how you ended up? Did did, did Shire recruit you or did Nolan Smith recruit you? So, Capel recruited me. Capel, okay. Capel, that was he was there, and then he after I committed, he like left like a week or two later. But uh, yeah, Capel recruited me, and then Shire took over. Uh, but not nah, like Trey and Cam had already committed, and then we just made a group chat with all four of us and then I committed after and then Zion came next. So it was just, it happened real smooth. Like we, man, we all knew, like we knew from day one, once we formed that group chat, man, we were so cool with each other. Like just made sense. JJ, JJ and I were talking about this uh, before you got on winning a national championship or just winning, you know, in the tournament with a bunch of freshmen, it doesn't happen very much. What were some of the challenges you guys realized with, uh, obviously an insane amount of talent, but just, you know, getting to the point where you guys can like win consistently big games, especially in like a one and done format. Yeah. You know, what actually, what helped was we were able to, we were able to go play um, in the summer. So because we, we had that year where we got to go on that foreign trip, we went to Canada and played some games, like those extra practices and like those game, like scenarios kind of helped. So I was able to play with Zion and like, okay, figure out, all right, 
I had 30, but he had 30. Like, okay, so this this can work. Like, how can we play off of each other instead of competing? And we just, none of us had that personality, though, to where, like, we were all competing. Like, I remember going to practice, like, just talking trash. Like, I get in Zion's face, like, and we we be talking like, yo, I know you can't guard me. He'd be saying the same thing. Like, so we went at each other, but, like, we, it worked. Like, you know, so. That was that was something I always be thankful for. Just be able to like not have egos and just go out there and play. I was in college. Dwight Howard was, uh, I think, two. His class was two years behind mine, and there were rumors that we were recruiting him. And then obviously he went to the NBA straight out of high school. And I watched him his rookie year, and I thought to myself, Jesus. If this fucking guy had played in Cameron Indoor Stadium, the shit we would have seen and the reactions from the Cameron crazies would have been wild. It, oh, yeah. Zion was that. Like, maybe mm-hmm. maybe more than that. A young mm-hmm. athletic Dwight. Like, Z- Zion's moments, the 360 dunk, the block shots. Is there a moment that sticks out in his freshman year? Man, which one? He's <laughs> he's a freak, man. And then like some of the stuff he did in practice that no one ever saw is like is ridiculous. Um that three sixty was was a big moment. I the moment for me was when we beat UNC in the the semifinals of the ACC tournament. That was he he had thirty one that game and he just he was dominant. Dominant, you know, like that was a that was kind of that whole game, just the way he took over. That was kind of you know, the moment that I remember. Yeah. I, I we, we should get into a little bit of your background because I find it to be fascinating. So you – I don't know how many countries you ended up living in, but your dad played professional basketball overseas. So mm-hmm. you spent a lot of your early childhood, uh, you know, around basketball, but obviously living in, in different places – are there any takeaways or influences that, that you found as you've grown up and become an adult uh, from that time period early before you guys moved back to Canada? Yeah. So I, I remember being in the places I remember were uh, Italy and France. I remember those two, those are the last two. And uh, I lived in France for four years. So I just, I was one of school that I became fluent there in, in that and, People don't know, but I didn't start going to school in English until high school. I always went to school in French. Um, so just, I loved it over there. It was nice. Uh, culturally, it was great. You know, just now when I'm in the league, being able to talk to different people, like I'm cool with uh, Frank Nilakino is one of my you know closest friends since I got to the league. Talk to him in French all the time. And now Evan Fournier is on the team, get to talk to him in French and stuff. So just memories like that are cool. and and just seeing how my dad was a pro every day, going to the games, seeing him eat, like, these big bowls of pasta before the game, like, getting ready. So, like, all those all those things, like, kind of helped me and, like, grew my love for the game. When did you get – um? when did you really s- sort of start working with Steve, um, you know, on a yeah. basketball level and then also just, like, on a personal level? Mm-hmm. Um, he's been there my whole life. So – he just like <laughs> ever since I was young, I remember like playing one on one with him when I was younger. I remember playing one on one with him when I was fourteen, and and I'm thinking, you know, like I'm thinking, man, I'm taller than you now. I'm, like I'm gonna go at you, like 
nah he was <laughs> he's crafty man that, that dude that dude was really nice oh man just now nah, we just we text all the time always giving me pointers you know so that's a that's a that's a great relationship for me to have how fluent is your french still is it pretty fluent hmm. i just know how to say there you go yeah there you go <laughs> Love that. I took two years of French in high school. I wasn't as immersed as you. So the, re- the, the, the retainment isn't there. The retainment isn't there. Um, that was good, though. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, before we move on from Duke, I, I do want to ask about Coach specifically. And, and obviously, uh, he just retired. Um, do, you have a, do you have a lasting memory of him, a lasting moment of him, or, yeah. or just some sort of perspective on the influence that that he had on you during that year you were together? Yeah, yeah man, like, there's one story I love I love to tell. Anybody who listened, is I had, like, a, a game where I was eight for eight for 30. I think when we played Syracuse, train went down. I was I was eight for 30. And um, I started to, I think I had a triple-double. I was eight for 30. Coach, I started to hesitate at the end of the game. Coach, like, came up to me the next day. He's like, like, what's wrong with you, man? I said, so what? What did I do? He's like, it's like, why are you, why were you hesitating? Why are you stop shooting? I said, coach, I shot 30 times. Coach, like, I, what, what do you want? Like, he's like, yeah. He's like, you should have shot 40 times. He's like, don't, don't hesitate. He's like, if you open, shoot the ball. I want you to shoot the ball every time. I said, all right, bet. Like, <laughs> that, you know what I'm saying? Like, how it's tough when, when a coach like that just builds your confidence up so much. Like, just, you make you feel like invincible. That's a good way to put it. And, and you briefly touched on this in, in talking about the similarities between him and Tibbs, but I always felt like with Coach, like for the best players, and obviously the role players mm-hmm. had a, a tougher time at times, but the best players on the team, the empowerment was always there. Yeah. And similar story, but we were, we were 27 and one my senior year. We had two regular season games left, and we went to Florida State. It was a Tuesday or Wednesday game, and then we had Carolina at home last regular season game and it was a hard fought game. We ended up losing the game and I was 10 for 28 from the field mm-hmm. had 30 points, but 10 for 28 from the field, not a great shooting night. Mm-hmm. And coach, I think could sense a little, you know, animosity uh-huh. or jealousy, whatever it was about, you know, 28 shots, 30 shots. Like you mentioned, that's a lot in college. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, shots. A lot of that's a lot of Jackson college. It's a lot of shots. And he, we had a team meeting the next day, and he brought all the guys that played in into his office, like, you know, the five or six of us, and he's just like, does anyone have a problem with J.J. shooting 28 times? Does anyone have a problem? And everybody's like, no, I don't. He's like, all right, get out of my office. Like, that was it. He nipped it in the bud right there. Um, and for me, I'm, I mean, I, I didn't need him to do that. I was probably going to shoot, you know, whatever, 28 times the next game if I had the chance to do it. But I, I just I, – I, that's what I loved about him was like that empowerment. Like sure. he was going to let me be the best version of myself. And I love that. Especially you, man. Especially you. Like you were, you were that guy. Like I remember like. A lot of play calls I, for me. Yeah, you were that guy, man. I, I remember like being there and I was like, because I, I would look up the records and like see, I was like, okay. So I said, all right. So JJ scored, he scored a thousand points in the season. All right, I'm going to try to go get that. Like. <laughs> So I was I was trying to I was trying to catch your record man the whole year I think I had like eight sixty or something like that I was but I was trying to catch that 
your your uh your single uh, season record. I, I don't think it was quite a thousand. I think uh it was somewhere nine in the nine sixty four maybe somewhere yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. I was close. The ACC record I want to say was Dennis Scott, if I'm not mistaken. He had a little bit more than me, but yeah. Some of those records, like the all-time scoring record, all you motherfuckers leave after one year now. Like, that's yeah. just never going to be broken. That's exactly. never going to be broken. Unless, unless the NIL stuff one. is going to pay somebody $10 million <laughs> a year. <laughs> Nobody's staying in school for four years anymore. Yeah. Um, with Shire, you know, you were around him. I've known John for uh, roughly 17 years now because I was, you know, his basically handler, his host every mm. time he would come visit. He used to stay with me every time. He would come visit Duke when he was in high school. Um, what do you think he will bring that's maybe different than coach? That's a that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. I think just one what he'll bring is is a level of kind of understanding of um, just more how the the game is going now, especially with like we have the NIL, we have all these things. So like the way college is going, it's like you might not get all the talent. You might not. It's going to, like, start being different. And I think he's just going to make do with with whatever is coming. Like, this incoming class, my young boy that I actually went to high school with, my senior year, Derek Whitehead, he's, like, number four in the country or whatever. So he's going there now. Like, I think he's just going to bring just a different energy, a different vibe, but still kind of go with the same. So he's been being groomed for this, like. Shire runs all the practices. He, you know, he, he does all the film. Like Shire's been, you know, the guy for some years. So he's he's been groomed, and I know he's ready. Yeah. Okay, how was your your draft night? What was your draft night experience like? Oh, it was lit, man. I, man, my emotions were all over the place. Like, I think uh, I was I was really happy to go to to the Knicks for sure. Um, my late grandfather, he he told me like. When I was really young, he always told me like, "Watch one day you're gonna you're gonna play for the Knicks." Watch, and that's why I have like a like Knicks hat like when I was like younger, like just wearing and stuff like that. So, nah, it was cool, man. It was cool. I was I was fine. And then I remember like they did an interview. My dad came over, and then like, when my dad came over, I started crying because you know like we work our we work our butt off for this, bro. Like we work hard every day for this stuff. So to see it come true right there was it was cool, man. Did you did you uh, know before draft night that it was you know obviously you never know what's going to happen but that it was mm-hmm. a pretty good chance that it was going to happen? I thought it was a pretty good chance, you know, especially because I knew John and I were going one and two, and um, I mean it would have looked crazy if it went any other way because I didn't work out for anybody else. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it kind of had to pick me. I felt. <laughs> I, I have a question about draft night, and I've watched most drafts prior to me getting drafted after my draft. I haven't watched everyone, but I've watched most drafts, and your draft class specifically um, was the first time that I really remember emotion being on display. Like a lot of you guys, and I, I, maybe it was because they interviewed you guys with your parents and it's yeah. such it, it, you're going through the emotion, but I, I was so struck 
by the open, open, openness and willingness of your draft class to just be raw in that moment. So many of you guys cried. Like I thought that was one of the coolest things that I've watched on live television. Yeah, no, that was, you hit it right there on the head, man. Like I remember I was good. Like I walked across the stage. I got the hat. I shook Adam Sandler's Adam Silver's hand. I was good, man. Like, I was good. And then I started doing the interview. I was fine. As soon as my dad walked over there, bro, like they asked, asked him one question. As soon as he walked over there, all the emotions just came. Like, cause man, my, my dad used to like wake me up in the morning before school. Like when I'm like 12, 11, 12, wake me up, take me to the gym before school. Like just drive me all over the place. Like, you know, just doing all these, all these things for me. So when I saw him come over there, I was like, yo, this, it's been a long time coming, man. So, yeah, I, I I think part of this and you, you brought up the sacrifices that your dad made. I mean, you know, my, I'm one of five kids and um, we all played sports. My parents would drive all over the country and they'd had a little color coded uh, calendar for, when, <laughs> you know, who was going to attend whose games. So there's sacrifices that are made. The other part of this, because I, I thought about this on that night is your parents are often the first people that you ever share your dreams with. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for me, my, my parents were the first people I ever said, I'm going to go play at Duke. And that was, mm-hmm. you know, so that was important that they got to be part of that experience. And of course, making the NBA, I'm sure we've all shared that with our parents. So I think that's so much part of it is like appreciating their role in your journey. And there's certain parents that are probably more hands-on or whatever, but that that notion of sharing a dream and then it, having it become true and then getting to share that moment with them, that's overwhelming. Whether you're 19 or 38, I don't care you know, what it is. Mm-hmm. That's such an overwhelming thing. Yeah, man. It, that's, that's right, bro. Your parents like this. Man, I didn't know you were one of five. That, that's dope. <laughs> that's yeah, dope. We, all, that's we all played D1 sports, too. We all played wow. uh, but, my parents didn't pay for college. We all got full scholarships. Pretty, pretty wild. Big actually. time, fam. Big time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all right. It's all right. RJ, um, JJ, JJ also claims that he would have been a professional baseball player with no evidence. He was really, RJ, he, I would have. He was really to, good. I wouldn't he, have gone to college because I would have been a first round pick out of high school. But so no I evidence. No evidence. Just, gone but straight. just so you know, he'll, he'll bring it up to you eventually if I, if I hadn't said it. Okay. RJ, I had a question. A question about draft night. Obviously, you knew. Um, with Zion, you know, for a while, how special he is and how special he was then. When did you know with Ja? Because I do feel like a lot, you know, a lot of people knew he was going to go in the top two or three, but I don't think the casual fan necessarily watched him play in college very much. And so they all know now, but when did you know? Well, I mean, first, like, I saw his highlights at first, and, like, I wasn't sold at first when I saw him at the beginning of the year because I'm like, I didn't watch the games enough. And also, you know, I was competitive, but, uh, like, when I saw him take that team to, you know, March Madness, and then when he had a triple-double in March Madness, I was like, okay, he's real. Like, he's real. But um, in terms of going number two, I feel like just with the that, you know what it is, what, what that team needs at the time. Like, they got Mike Conley out, and it was like, okay, they literally had the whole franchise built around Mike Conley, so all they did was move. Mike can just bring in Ja, and that's, I mean, I think that's a huge part of the success right now. But, um, yeah, no, once I saw that that triple-double, I was like, okay, yeah, he's he's real. On that point, RJ, because, you know, you mentioned 
watching his highlights, knowing where he was positioned in the mock drafts mm-hmm. and being competitive. And like everybody, if you're a top pick, you want to go number one or number two, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Sure. Um, is it is it hard for you? Because it's human nature. Is it hard for you not to get caught up in comparing your trajectory and your mm-hmm. journey and your timeline as an NBA player with Zion and Ja? Because you were the guy drafted right mm-hmm. after them. Yeah, you know, sometimes like one of my one of my assistant coaches on the Knicks, he always tells me, he's like, he's like, man, everybody's journey is different. He's like, you know, some guys they they got it right away, and other guys it takes them four or five, six years to, you know, get to that goal, get to where they want to be, the type of player they want to be. And um, in terms of comparing, you know, I don't really I, I think teams and where you go and how the team is set up and how it is, all those things, like all those things matter, you know, like Zion's also just a freak. He can go anywhere and just like that guy, man, he just, cause he, he's a guy that doesn't need plays. So that's just his, just his body and what he does. Like he's going to be successful anywhere. And like I said, Jai was kind of placed into that situation where of course he had to do it, but, the organization was kind of already set up in that way already, you know. Um, so me, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to do my thing, just trying to figure it out. Um, I had a ended up having a pretty good year, so just trying to continue to be the best version of, of myself every day. Where do you think that growth is? That next step, mm-hmm. that next level for you when you self evaluate or when you talk to your coaches or your agents or your mm-hmm. family? Where do you see yeah. that growth needed? I think right now I'm trying to work on and what I saw in, in this year was just really my, my pull-ups and having consistent a consistent jumper. Because that, like, if I get to the rim so much, I feel like I get to the rim at, at any time. If I can mix in those those pull-ups and, like, if they go under, if I can consistently make that that three going under, like, now being a complete three-level scorer, that's, that's hard to stop. You're going to score at any point, you know, and uh, – my kind of my kind of next step for me is, you know, I, I want to be the leader. I, I've always said I want to be the leader on the team. I want to help um, any any way I can and and get the team back to the playoffs because winning is what's obviously what's most important. And you know, next year, like my goal, I feel feel like I could be an all star. You know, be an all star or be in the conversation, which is obviously going to come with winning. But like I have the ability to, I've always I've always have so. We were talking. We were talking uh, before you got on about the mid range with Demar and how he's mm-hmm. you know crafted, then how he's perfected it. Are there guys? Um, are there guys around the league that you like enjoy watching? You know now or you know when you were when you were in college, like when you were coming up. Mm-hmm. Man, Demar is big time for me. One I've been watching Demar basically half my life because he played for the Raptors, um, and just see how he came from just being athletic and dunking all the time to now like. When I was guarding him, he's some of his footwork. I'm like, bro, what am I supposed to do right now? <laughs> so I remember I, I asked him mid game, I'm like, bro, I said, can I work out with you this summer? Like, <laughs> like real talk, just because he, the what he's doing, man, like, I feel like if I could add like some of those mid range to my game, just some of that footwork, like, it's unstoppable. I was I was going to ask about uh, we were talking before we started recording about you, you work out with Drew uh, Hanlon mm-hmm. in the summer. And so you work out with Jason sometimes. He's another yeah. one. He's another one. Obviously, we're seeing it in the playoffs right now. But he's another one that you see feels like he keeps taking that that mm-hmm. jump. 
every year. What do you, you know, you have that perspective seeing him yeah. all the time over the summer. What do you think about yeah. like, his, what does the casual fan not know about his game, you know, and how he crafts it? I think casual fan doesn't know his, his confidence. Like, so in the summer, I would kind of, I will work out and then Jason will work out after um, or, or Brad Beal will work out after. And like, I, I remember one from Brad Beal. He just, he doesn't leave the gym without like making 10 in a row, like deep threes. Like that was something that I, I took from that. So no matter how the workout went, he's always leaving on that note. And, and Jason's workouts, like everything he does in the game, that's literally just his workouts. He's so confident. Like, He'll be going through something, and then he'll just like stop and be like, "Yo, I'm I'm nice, like I'm re- I'm really good at this. I really do this." Like he'll be talking to the whole gym. So I was like, "Okay, like that." I mess with that. Like I like I like that. That's amazing. Uh, all right, RJ, we can we can wrap up here. We appreciate the time. I just had one last question: Are you going to sign an extension this offseason? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Uh, I we all hope so. Nick- in about like that'll be the first Nick in like 20 years so I hope so for sure make it happen make it happen RJ we appreciate it I think so thank you bro we'll see you soon If you like the old man of the three, you can listen ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off. And everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow the big flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.